Astronomer and UFO skeptic Carl Sagan once remarked that we cannot discount the possibility that alien evangelists are wandering the universe, looking for souls to save. Sagan does not believe that aliens have visited Earth yet, but a lot of other people do. A confirmed contact with them would certainly change the way we all look at the world, and it might even affect our religious beliefs. Tonight, in the continuation of our series on UFOs, George Knapp talks with religious leaders and also looks at the possibility that aliens have been abducting humans. Tongues were certainly flapping when these strange Christmas lights first appeared as decorations at a Las Vegas home. The odd combination of a star and swastika raised the specter of Christmas Nazis or Noel skinheads. Paulette and George Ficou laugh at such interpretations. The symbol in the Christmas lights is the same one they wear around their necks. They say it's an interplanetary symbol of goodwill, a beacon to our space brethren to come on down. What's the basic message here? The basic is we was created in laboratory by the extraterrestrial. The Ficous belong to what's called the Raelian movement, named for its prophet, Rael, a former French journalist who says he was told by ETs to spread the gospel. The Raelians, now 30,000 strong worldwide, believe that space beings created humans through genetic experimentation. They firmly believe that Jesus, Moses, and Buddha were, like Rael, ET emissaries. But they don't think their faith must necessarily clash with mainstream religions. But like Rael say, you know, if you are really good Catholic, good people, you believe, you know, in God, in Jesus, but the way you are and you feel good in your body, that's the more important. And, and it, that's it, don't change. Raelians aren't the first to see the parallels between religion and the UFO experience. The Bible is filled with events that, if taken literally, can just as easily be interpreted as encounters with aliens as with angels. <laughs> but I, I had so much commentary that I wanted to say, and I just kept it to myself because the, there's just so much that is fucking amazing. Right. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> Her hair and everything. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Wet Wired, premium episode number nine, the Raelians and their alien embassy. We're taking a much-needed hiatus from our summer coverage of the fascists and Christian nationalists to talk about Maitreya Rael, the last prophet of the Elohim. Rael, a former pop singer and street musician who had a little success with the song Miel et le Canel, later founded an auto racing magazine called Autopop. Born Claude Vorilon, he now leads the international Raelian movement and claims that today there are more than 130,000 members worldwide. Rael teaches his followers that 25,000 years ago, scientists from a far-off planet came to Earth and created all life here as part of a genetic experiment. Rael claims to have first learned these truths from an extraterrestrial he encountered while hiking in his native France. He also tells his followers that he was later taken to visit that alien's homeworld, which they call the Planet of the Eternals. There he encountered firsthand the marvels of their advanced technology. Notable among their advances are thought-projecting helmets, human-cloned sex robots, and huge computers that are able to constantly monitor every human being on the Earth. While on the planet of the Eternals, the aliens, who call themselves the Elohim, gave Rael a mission. Spread the message of the Elohim and build the Elohim's embassy on Earth according to their specifications. 
In Rael's book, The Book Which Tells the Truth, he tells the story of his first encounter with our alien creators. On a cool winter day, Quad... <laughs> on a cool winter day, Claude Varillon... On a cool winter day... Quad, on the wall, cool winter day, Quad Warriolone <laughs> decided to climb the long dormant volcano overlooking the Quermont for wand and spend a day basking in the beautiful greenery. <laughs> what, what, what is this, uh, fucking Blazing Saddles? <laughs> <laughs> on a, <laughs> you broke me. <laughs> On a cool winter day, Claude Borillon decided to climb the long dormant volcano overlooking Clément Ferrand and spend a day basking in the beautiful greenery. It was December 13th, 1973. After logging countless hours as a journalist following the auto races and living on the road for months on end, getting to the top of the volcano on foot probably felt like a grand adventure. The air was cool and the sky rather gray, with a background mist. He walked for a while and then jogged a little, eventually leaving the path where his car was parked. He aimed to reach the edge of the, edge of the caldera, called Puy de las Solas, near to where he'd often gone for picnics with his family in the summers. Arriving at the summit, Claude took a moment to absorb the view. He imagined eons ago when orange-hot lava sprayed into the air, Fragments of volcanic rock were still lodged among the rubble at his feet. What a magnificent place it was, he might have thought. It occurred to him to take a souvenir of his walk, but he let the idea pass. We'll let him tell the rest of the story in his own words. I was a journalist and I was uh, going to my office at about 9 a.m. in the city of Clermont-Ferrand, the center of France. And uh, then I went to a, a volcano uh, named the Puy de la Sola in the mountain. I didn't know why I had this strong feeling to go to this place. And when I arrived in the volcano, I said, why am I there? I have a lot of work to do in my office. And then I saw this flashing light in the sky, very strong and slowly appears something like a, a, a bell made of very shining silver metal, slowly coming down and without any noise. So I, I was so happy to see that because I said, wow, that's what people call a UFO and it will disappear. And I was sure of that. But then it came slowly, come down and closer to me. It was maybe seven meter diameter and a, a trap door was opened under the craft. And then I realized, wow, if, if it opened a, a trap door with a, a stair on it, somebody will come outside. So maybe it's dangerous to be there. So I, I, I was ready to run away, but I wait a little, say, I want to see if I see any gun or anything looking dangerous, I will run away, but I wait. And I saw a, a small man coming outside. First thing I was watching was a hand. Is there a gun? Nothing. Empty. And then he was walking toward me, and the face was so full of love, so peaceful, and like uh, I felt love. And that was the beginning of the story. The first thing he thought was, <laughs> does he have a gun? <laughs> I... <laughs> 
and and the image in there of the of the per the depiction of the alien looks like a fucking bad depiction of a goth Michael Jackson. No, he looks like Trent Reznor. <laughs> <laughs> like a very a very petite Trent Reznor. Sort of a, or like a, a a very skinny Glenn Danzig. <laughs> Did you know he's like five foot two? That's what I'm saying. It's a very short alien. <laughs> This is from Claude Rail's book, Intelligent Design. I was just about to leave and looked at the last time <laughs> at the top of this circular mountain, which was formed by an accumulation of volcanic slag. It Are reminded you me the of the whole time? how many times I had slid down those steep slopes as if I was on the skis. Suddenly in the fog, I saw a red light flashing. Then a sort of helicopter was descending towards me. A helicopter, however, it, it makes a lot of noise. But at that moment, I could hear absolutely nothing. Not even the slightest whistle. It was the balloon, maybe. All right, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> I was wondering when you were going to stop. <laughs> I couldn't help it. No, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> this is still from the same text. <laughs> By now, the object was about 20 meters above the ground. I, I'm still doing it. I can't stop. <laughs> You're still fucking doing it. <laughs> and I could see it had a somewhat flattened shape. It was a flying saucer. It's, it's, it's like it's like in fucking Life Aquatic, uh, the the bad fucking French accent. Uh, who, who's um? No, it's not French. Uh, it's uh, it's the bad German accent by um, fucking de, uh, fail. The guy who he's such amazing actor. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. All right. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, so, as so, you were, somebody, as you were a soldier. <laughs> somebody let us know who the actor was. <laughs> it was a flying I mean, it's, saucer. It's my favorite. It's my favorite fucking film. Like I've literally seen it twenty it times. Is, it, it is his favorite movie, and he's not exaggerating. He's got like three of the outfits in his wardrobe. I'm not. That's not a joke. No, I'm not. I would never joke about something so <laughs> heinous. <laughs> I mean, inspired by. It's not. Not the same outfit. I'd always believed in their existence, but I had never dreamed I would actually see one. It measured some seven meters in diameter, about 2.5 meters in height, was flat underneath and cone-shaped. On its underside, a very bright red light flashed, while at the top, an intermittent white light reminded me of a camera flash cube. This was the 70s. Camera flash cubes. That's real. This white light was so intense that I could not look at it without blinking. The object continued to descend, without the slightest noise until it stopped and hovered motionless about two meters above the ground. I was petrified and remained absolutely still. I was not afraid, but rather filled with joy to be living through such a great moment. I bitterly regretted not having brought my camera with me. Then the incredible happened. A trap door opened beneath the machine and a kind of stairway unfolded to the ground. I realized that some living being was about to appear, and I wondered what it was going to look like. First two feet appeared, then two legs, which reassured me a little, since apparently I was about to meet a man. And not like a sentient slug or something like that. <laughs> Could have been a slug with legs. 
In the event, what at first I took to be a child came down the stairway and walked straight towards me. That scene in the the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still with Keanu Reeves. And (laughs) the the, the aliens show up and I I think it was a couple of, like it was a general and, you know, somebody from the from the White House staff or something. I don't remember who the characters were, but they're watching uh, sort of a Noah's Ark moment where uh, different uh, 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 individuals from each of these different species on the planet were, were being brought up. And at one point they're like bringing up an octopus or a squid or something. And the guy says, is that one of them? (laughs) Is is that one of them? Is that one of the aliens? And the other, the, the other person said, no, that's, that's, you know, that's one of ours. That's like an earth creature. Like you don't know what a fucking octopus looks like. <laughs> well, I, this, this description, uh, from, from Claude sounds like, uh, the, it, it's, it's like so slow and sensual. It sounds like a, a bad fucking soft porn intro. Like if you were to give direct directions, like, First, we see the feet and then the legs. The the weird science when they make the lady and and the sort of the 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 smoke the the dry ice starts fading out like spreading out and you just see Kelly LeBrock appearing slowly limb by limb out of the dry ice. Total babe while we're on the subject, which was the point. First two feet appeared, then two legs, which reassured me a little since apparently I was about to meet a man. In the event, what at first I took to be a child came down the stairway and walked straight towards me. I could see then that this was certainly no child, even though the figure was only about four feet, 1.2 meters tall. His eyes were slightly almond-shaped, his hair was black and long, and he had a small black beard. I still had not moved, and he stopped about ten meters away from me. He wore some sort of green one-piece suit, which covered his entire body, and although his head seemed to be exposed, I could see around it a strange sort of halo. It was not really a halo, but the air about his face shone slightly and shimmered. It looked like an invisible shield, like a bubble, so fine that you could barely see it. His skin was white and with a slightly greenish tinge, a bit like someone with liver trouble. By the way, are, are are we sure that this is not Charlie Day in the green suit? <laughs> and and people with liver trouble have jaundice, and that's it's yellow. yellow. It's fucking yellow. <laughs> if you have, if you're green, like literally green, there's something worse than liver trouble going on. Legit, this is no joke. I I saw somebody on on the street. I don't know how many months ago, but it was just a ra- random fucking stranger. But I saw them on the street, and I, I, I think they were on their way to a hospital or something like that. The, the context is unclear. But I legit saw somebody who I'm. I I looked it up afterwards. They were so fucking crazy yellow. I didn't know what I was looking at, but it looked like something that I could not possibly believe. It 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 like somebody who is yellow with jaundice. The only way I can describe it is it doesn't look real. Mm-hmm. Like I was looking at this person and they looked like they had some kind of like body paint on or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was it was only after I had passed them and I was it, I, I couldn't I couldn't help them or do anything for them. It, it was it was a weird circumstance. Yeah, that, that's, that's outside of your control to fix. That's not it's not it's not like, do you need a ride or can I give you a quarter? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I, I saw this person, but I looked it up after I saw what I saw and I was like, Holy shit, that person had jaundice. And 
I I cannot possibly describe how unreal that yellow color looks. It really does not look real. The alien spoke in clear French, explaining to Claude that he'd used telepathy to plant the idea in his head to climb the volcano that day. The alien next asked Claude what he knew about the Bible, and if he owned one. Claude was shocked, since he'd bought a copy of the Bible just a few days earlier. This, the alien explained, was also a telepathic suggestion. Over the next hours, Claude learned that this extraterrestrial had traveled from a heavily populated planet very far from Earth, and that he made the trip for no other purpose than to meet Claude and explain to him the mysteries of the Bible. Imagine finally meeting an alien, and he shows up and asks you if you've heard the good word. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's bad enough when they're at my doorstep. (laughs) It's just like getting visited by by an alien Jehovah's Witness. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever ever had Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons show up at your house? I have not had the good pleasure, and and the worst part... Or the best part, probably best for them, is that I would be so either philosophical with them and invite them in, like in that scene with Black Books, where he's trying to avoid doing his taxes. <laughs> you know the episode? I, I, it might have been one of the... I've never even uh, heard of the, the show. <laughs> Black Books? Are I, you serious? I, I said I never heard of it, yeah. I wouldn't make that up. <laughs> oh, it's so good. If you like IT crowd, you, it, Black Books is it. He's he's just a, a wino drunk who owns a bookstore and he hates customers. That's the whole story. He's just a surly, terrible person. Among the people on the alien's home planet who he was told are called Elohim, it was decided that Claude would be the perfect person to spread their message. Notably because Claude was from France. The birthplace <laughs> of democracy. Which is not accurate at all no no of course the french-speaking alien is going to say the democracy came from france (laughs) (laughs) the alien was obviously also fudging a little while watching earth closely because he didn't miss because he didn't just miss ancient athens the place usually given credit as the birthplace of democracy he missed the phoenicians india and probably quite a few neolithic groups in the (laughs) near east Basically, the alien missed every single one of the other civilizations where aspects of democracy developed. (laughs) Not to mention indigenous cultures among the Pacific Northwest in North America. Yeah, right. I mean, he should have checked with Graeber and Wingrow. (laughs) (laughs) The Elohim had also chosen Claude because he was born after the United States dropped nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The government on the extraterrestrial's faraway planet was very clear that they wanted absolutely nothing to do with anyone who was even alive on Earth when those bombs were dropped. So whether or not you were an infant, if you were born before those bombs were dropped and you were alive when it happened, no, you don't. You, you are not eligible for the Elohim ambassador program. <laughs> It's a strict cutoff date. So ageist. (laughs) As an added bonus, the Elohim were also very pleased that one of Claude's parents was Jewish and the other Catholic. This is all from his book. None of this is made up. 
They were happy that he wasn't anti-religion, but also that he didn't fully align with any one particular belief system. And evidently, the only evidence for that is that he's half Jewish and half Catholic. So how could he possibly be aligned with either one of those? Because hey, that means he's he the couldn't... perfect mix. I oh, mean, yeah. he's, he's like a fucking Neapolitan ice cream. Absolutely. Every flavor that you need. But supremely important to them was the fact that Claude was above all else completely and totally average. And according to Claude, that is exactly what the alien told him. They felt that a mediocre man would best present the knowledge they wanted to share and wouldn't overcomplicate it like a scientist or even a more literary person might. I mean, it, it, sa- it sounds like some shit that we'd hear from fucking Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or one of these people where they're talking about the elitist uh, uh, coastal liberals. No, no, no. They just like the salt of the earth. <laughs> Unless the salt of the earth want unions or rights or anything like that. They're not salt of the earth. No, those are liberal elites. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter if you work in a machine shop. You are, If you want a union, you are part of the Rothschild conspiracy. And so seriously, if they wanted a mediocre person after watching all of these video clips and reading all of these things about Claude Vorlone, they absolutely found the right guy. <laughs> because if he is anything... He is absolutely mediocre. Reading his writings as I have, as we have, uh, reading his, let me try that again. You see how he's trying to not give me credit here? (laughs) (laughs) Reading his writings, it does have a plain Jane kind of vernacular, but it's not in a uh, American style of literature kind of way like we might find from Hemingway where it has that sort of pedestrian vernacular. He is being it's, so kind to him he, right now. This is what it looks like when you self-publish your novel, <laughs> get it translated into another language and then just say goodbye to it and move on. And maybe just start a cult instead of editing it. Claude apparently took no offense to any of this and agreed to return the next day with his copy of the Bible, something to write with, and something to write on. And also under the condition that he would tell no one of this encounter in the meantime. The alien was very clear about this, that he was not allowed to talk to anybody until he heard everything that the alien had to say. Over the next week, Claude continued meeting with the alien, called an Eloha, which would be the singular of Elohim at the same time and place every day. He would show up, they would climb into the alien's flying saucer, sit in the comfy seats, that was pointed out that the seats were very comfortable, and Claude would receive his Bible lesson. Claude learned that the true meaning of the verses of the book of Genesis, for example, is a description of genetic engineering experiments conducted by these aliens. The Aloha also told Rael that many of his people had taken human wives. So... Already, this is sort of like an E.T. island of Dr. Moreau. I, know, I where, was thinking the real meaning of Christmas for a second. <laughs> yeah, well, wait, where, you know, yeah, the, the aliens go to a secluded backwater planet so they can do their science experiments. <laughs> and also notice that so far I have not mentioned in any way whatsoever that there were any female aliens at all. The females, there are no female aliens mentioned in any of this description. So all of this wife taking, there's no husband taking. And in fact, I don't think that there's any mention of female aliens 
I know there's not in any in this book, but my my segment does not cover the other books. Did you find any female aliens? I have not found fucking shit. Yeah, so far, the only females we learn about are going to be fucking mindless sex clones. Robot sex clones. They're not robots. They are, they are flesh and blood. They're oh, no, ro- you're right. You're right. You're yeah, right. They're, they're robots in the sense of organic robots, biological robots. Yeah, but they, they're not constructed. They're grown. I mean, it, it's it's like it's like a fucking uh, Star Trek debate about is data a life form? But, but he was still technology, though. I mean, he was still constructed. He wasn't a, he wasn't genetic material. This is these clones. And I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. This is all foreshadowing for how things are going to go. If you ever wonder how, what somebody thinks about something, then let them talk to you about their fantasies because <laughs> they're going to tell you how they feel about everything. You know, oh, what yeah. kind of porn do they watch? Because that shit <laughs> is in the back of their mind as a worldview. <laughs> so let's start with the tentacles. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, right. Look at, look at it. You want to know about a culture? Look at what, try to find out what kind of porn is the most popular. Go to Pornhub and see what's trending for that country. <laughs> the biblical flood, Claude finds out, is in fact a description of a barrage of nuclear missiles sent from the aliens' home planet and meant to destroy their creation. It seems that people were getting a little bit too smart for the Elohim's taste, so they decided to pull the plug on the whole science experiment and just lock everything down with nuclear with a nuclear assault. In the cosmology of Raelianism, the idea is that human beings are supposed to be an experiment, but there is a huge deal of controversy controversy in terms of whether or not the genetic experiment should happen at all. And they wanted that genetic experiment that is us to be as far away as possible from the home world. Yeah. So it couldn't be potentially dangerous to the home world. This is a key point. Yeah. But let's get back into this part, though. That, yeah, because, all, yeah, that, 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 that actually all. is kind of outside of where we're, we're heading. All right. We, we, yeah. you can, you can we're doing Bible on. stuff right now. <laughs> all right. Rebellious Elohim scientists, not wanting to see their creations destroyed, warned the people of Earth. With the disobeying Elohim's help, they built a spacecraft and preserved a single cell from every animal for the safety of the space. Actually, hold on. With the with the with the disobeying with the disobeying Elohim's help, they built a spacecraft and preserved a single cell from from two of every animal species. From the safety of that spaceship, they watched as the planet was consumed, first in nuclear fire, and then by a tidal wave that rippled across the entire surface. So, if you couldn't tell, Noah's Ark. (laughs) (laughs) Everything will be explained. All mysteries will be revealed. (laughs) And and this Ark won't be uh, claimed for insurance purposes in Tennessee, for for what it's worth. (laughs) Jesus. The Tower of Babel was actually a space-worthy rocket made by the people who the Elohim creators considered the most intelligent. That would be the Jews. And (laughs) we will absolutely come back to that. (laughs) At least it's not anti-Semitic, but it's definitely 
it's a still little weird with the a, Jews. Yeah, it's still very a little fucking weird. It's a different twist. According to the alien, the Jews were planning a goodwill mission to their creator's home world to let them know that there were no hard feelings about the nuclear holocaust and flood. <laughs> Servility. Honestly, that's honestly that's that's not much better than the story where it's like, well, <clears throat> we wiped out almost everybody on Earth, but here's a rainbow. But not everyone got the same subjugation genes, though. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities full of rebellious humans who were not so forgiving. It seems they'd gathered there to plan revenge for all the nuclear destruction. These humans were in the process of salvaging as much alien technology as they could get their hands on, with the intent of taking the fight straight to the alien's home planet. Between, so between Claude Vorolone's Elohim and Zechariah Stitchin's Anunnaki, we basically have the entire plot of Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's all there. The Elohim sent spies to Sodom and Gomorrah and discovered the plot. And then the Elohim destroyed both cities with more nuclear bombs. We're getting a bit repetitious here. And and He's really a sort of like of nukes. And really sort of Scientology-esque, I think. It really it's is. It's not the same, but you know, just straight out of the Scientology mythology, it's all H-bombs. Everything's H-bombs. But that's like the only thing that that Vor alone could wrap his head around as far as high technology goes was nuclear weapons. That was the height of destructive power. We don't, there's nothing beyond nuclear weapons. And it was the same thing with L. Ron Hubbard. They were totally constricted by their, by their own imagination. When they thought of this high-tech society that was doing these things, the most they could imagine was a futuristic version of a Studebaker. <laughs> I mean, it's like the Jetsons where they have, where they have cars that are still cars. It's just that they fly. Well, right. And you try still like, the same fucking the, the, thing. The, the most advanced mode of transportation is basically a moving sidewalk. <laughs> we have that in airports. The, and then we built it because people grew up watching the fucking Jetsons. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember thinking this when I was reading Paradise Lost by Milton that, you know, they, they, they talk, you know, this is all about Satan and the rebel angels attacking heaven. And they're using artillery, field artillery, like cannons and things like that, because that's what Milton knew. That was the best he could do. He couldn't imagine this sort of ethereal, angelic combat would look like. How would angels fight? Oh, well, they'd fight just like humans do in the 19th century with cannons. It makes me think of in in uh, Star Trek Voyager when you see I I try to like raise the erudition of this podcast. <laughs> I bring up Milton for fuck's sake, and he brings us to probably the worst Star Trek <laughs> franchise that we can imagine. It's not Next Generation. It's not the original series. It's not even Enterprise. Oh, I, I meant to say, uh, 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 if you bring up D Space Nine right now, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, hey, DS9 was some good stuff. The things am, with the, cl the clones and the shapeshifters. He is that so was a fired right dubious. now. <laughs> so fired. 
we're going to skip the Voyager jokes, huh? No, I'm going to leave that all in. <laughs> oh, really? Because I didn't even say what I was going to say. <laughs> Go ahead and say it. Because <laughs> you, it was, it was, the whole thing was just you roasting me. I know, I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say... <laughs> it's... It's like when the uh, the Voyager crew goes to the continuum of the queue, and in order for them to comprehend it, they present it as a an old Western kind of desert town, because that's the only way that they can understand yeah, it. They have to be able to relate to it with some sort of television trope. And honestly, that's probably not even what the queue would think that the humans would be able to be able to comprehend. It's what the screenwriters thought that the Q would be able would think of for the humans. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, uh, Rael is the screenwriter in this case. I mean, basically, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's what that's what I'm saying. That's the whole point. The story of Abraham being tested when God tells him to kill his son Isaac is pretty much unchanged, except that now it's aliens. Evidently, the Elohim wanted to see if anyone on Earth still trusted them after all that bombing. And Abraham was their mark. You know, after all of this, I, I'm not, I, I don't know. I kind of have some, in a way, it almost adds a little bit of credibility to Rael and that maybe he's telling the truth about all this stuff because essentially these are all things that our government does all the time. And maybe we are just taking after our creators, you know, because if they made us, then we're doing all the shit that they would do. Another thing, though, is that for a civilization that is really unhappy about humans developing nuclear weapons, they bomb the shit out of people a lot. Yeah. They specifically said that they chose Rael because he was born after humans dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yet they're doing this over and over and over again now. Yeah, huge fans of nuking the, the, the world. <laughs> The alien rounded off the Bible study with explanations of Moses and the exodus of the Jews. Now we're back to how the aliens see the Jews. They keep favoring them because, as the Aloha described it, the Jews were the absolute best of the humans that they created. And because they liked them so much, they set up the nation of Israel for them and helped Moses with their getaway from the Egyptians. This is from Claude's book, Intelligent Design. This explains why they have always considered themselves to be the chosen people. In truth, they were the people chosen by the teams of scientists who gathered together to judge their creations. You can see for yourself the number of geniuses born out of that race. <laughs> oh, man. At the end of the Bible stories, the alien gives Claude his mission and a new name. Claude's purpose will, from that day on, be to spread the word of the Elohim. He will be their messenger and ambassador on earth. And his name from now on will be Rael. As abruptly as the alien had arrived, he left, without even telling Claude his own name. <laughs> and the entire book... The alien never gives his name to Claude, and Claude never asks him. They just keep meeting up to have these conversations about the Bible. He doesn't ask the alien's name. He doesn't ask him about 
his family. They don't talk about their personal lives. Nothing. There is no there is no other conversation. It's the fucking glory hole of religions. Right. You don't you don't know who's <laughs> on the other side. Claude had his mission, and next he got to work spreading the Elohim's message. Now calling himself Rael, he transformed this week's worth of Bible notes into his first book, which he called, very literally, The Book Which Tells the Truth. After a few years, Rael traveled to the Elohim home planet, called the Planet of the Eternals. That's a very 1970s comic book name for a planet. I mean, I can, I can, see, I can see heavy metal-esque illustrations. So that he could learn more about his mission and get some mental upgrades. After he returned, he wrote, Extraterrestrials took me to their planet. And then, let's welcome the extraterrestrials. <laughs> These are not book titles. These are synopses. This is like the uh, cliff notes that you order from Wish. <laughs> when you search for a topic and you don't find what you're looking for on the first page, and then you, you, so you get to the second page, and... It's all of these services that want to write an essay for you. Because <laughs> nobody searches for this shit unless you're writing a school paper. These three books are now collected into one volume called Intelligent Design, Message from the Designers. It's a, it, it's a trilogy. That's actually That's a, a good title. It's not, it's yeah. not, it's it, not a it bad a trilogy. trilogy name. Yes. No, no, that's, that's actually a good title. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he workshopped <laughs> that one. We can probably guess that there are probably there, there, there might have been some more books in this series that he did not publish, and maybe something like "Honestly, all of these things really happened to me," <laughs> <laughs> or "The aliens put me in charge, so now you have to listen." <laughs> Little green men, and also the pink women. <laughs> <laughs> or, or no seriously all of these sex clones were willing <laughs> that's the oh, me too version god is it uh that's the one that's on joe rogan's podcast in mars in december 1974 one year after rail's first out of this world meet and greet he launched his initial organization medic a French acronym that stands for the Movement for Welcoming the Elohim Creators of Humanity. What a fucking mouthful. That is a terrible name <laughs> it's for so an organization. Fucking bad. <laughs> According to the current Raelian website, the initial organization quickly grew to 170 members. About that time, Rael was able to fill a 2000 seat lecture hall on the promise that he's going to tell everybody about his E.T. encounter and the message that they'd just given him. It was probably full. Only the people there and the Elohim really know. There are very few sources about the Raelians by anybody outside the organization or former members. For this episode, I've relied heavily on Susan Palmer, a sociologist of religion and one of the most prominent non-Raelian sources who wrote the 1994 book Aliens Adored, Rael's UFO Religion. Rail was able to get an audience and a following pretty fast. This didn't come out of nowhere. The ancient astronaut scene was already bustling with conventions and a whole genre of literature or very serious nonfiction, if you like. Medic was drawing on exactly this crowd to pull an already captive audience for lore about little green men. Authors like Robert Charon, Jean Sendi and Eric von Dinneken 
had already been writing ancient alien books since the 60s, since at least the mid-60s. Yeah, I think Robert Chereau was actually writing in the 50s. Was he? Yeah, I think I, I, th- I think he was probably the earliest of that group to talk about a- ancient astronauts specifically and, and, and how they influence the development of humanity. He was really early on the scene. Even the trots were getting in on the action. Juan Posadas wrote Flying Saucers, The Process of Matter and Energy, Science and the Revolutionary Working Class Struggle, and the Socialist Future of Mankind in 1968. Is that the whole book title? Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Holy Christ. (laughs) Flying Saucers, The Process of Matter and Energy, Science, the Revolutionary and Working Class Struggle, and the Socialist Future of Mankind. <laughs> I mean... Can you you it, can't even put it, that on the cover. It, it, it might have been like a, a colon kind of a thing where you have like the title, right. subtitle. But nevertheless, Posadas was, was uh, a bit controversial in the Fourth International for being a fucking ufologist. <laughs> He's from Venezuela, right? Uh, South America. No, I, I want to say it's... Uh, I want to say Ecuador. No, he was Argentine. Oh, okay. The blend of futurism, alternative tellings of human origins, and otherworldly visitors was trending. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, it was fucking hot. It was hot on the scene in the 60s and 70s. Uh, yeah, and you can imagine this. Like, all of these hippies that are totally frustrated with the fact that their revolution failed. Like, no matter how much acid they took, it didn't matter because the man was still there. The man won. Yeah, the man absolutely won. That's and they right. needed a fucking answer. Yeah. Right Big out of the- Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> the bums lost. <laughs> <laughs> right out of the gate, Rael decided to publish his first book. As a former journalist, this is perfectly in his wheelhouse, and it gave him more to work with. He needed funds to get it published, though. In her book, Palmer said the president, secretary, and treasurer of Medic each ponied up 10,000 francs to publish Claude's first book in 1974. It's hard to say if this is a chicken or the egg thing with his book, but his group and his first book both came out at the same time and made each other possible. I mean, that makes sense, is that he's like, he's growing his audience and he's also writing a book, so... He uses, you know, he takes advantage of the audience to publish the book that he's writing. And, but the published book is also more material to make the audience even bigger. So, yeah. It's kind of a feedback loop. Yeah. You can see this whole thing. I mean, this is, this is, this is the program that everybody is running. You know, they, (laughs) they, they grow an audience, they write a book to exhibit their expertise and the audience gets bigger. That's it. You start tweeting your ass off, then you write a book, and then your your follower count goes up. The trouble with these space alien fans is that they're apparently not that exclusive with their interests in people visited by space aliens. Palmer described Medic as wildly out of control for Rael, almost from the moment of his inception. By which I mean the following April. That's So less less than a year. Less than a year. <laughs> That's from winter to spring. Four months. Because ancient astronauts were hot and everybody was dabbling. They were going all they were going to everything. If somebody wanted to talk about ancient aliens, they were going to show up. 
they didn't see Rael as the messenger of the Elohim. They saw him as another guy, another one that had was talking they about like the his same story stuff. and and they wanted to connect with other contactees, mm-hmm. abductees, if you will. I don't think that had happened yet. I think the abductee thing comes later. The the abductee thing was more eighties. Yeah, that's like part. late seventies, early eighties for, for the, the most abductee part. thing. Yeah. But the ancient astronaut thing, all this theorizing and Bible baking that was going on, that was in that was already happening. Solidly sixties and seventies. Charles Aimonier, the secretary of Medec, complained that people in the organization were declaring titles for themselves like Secretary General and Administrative Director. Is this <laughs> is this a fucking left leftist organization? Right. I mean, it sounds every, everybody, like a, every fucking everybody's a bo- everybody I've ever heard. Yeah, everybody's somebody else's boss. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, it's really just a fucking book club, and people just give themselves seven different titles <laughs> that are on their business card. Right, it, it's a von Daniken book club. <laughs> Meanwhile, these guys were trying to establish rules to reel in Rail's charismatic authority. I don't know if he was really that charismatic. He probably was. But this is how it was described by Palmer. And literally in everything that I've read about this guy, in the videos that I've seen of him and the things that I've heard from him, I didn't find him to be that charismatic. But literally everything that I've read about him talks about his charisma. I would say compared to other religious sect leaders, I would put him on a scale of one to ten <laughs> at about... Give me your uh, rating, the Sean, the official Sean rating. Maybe a six. That's that's fair. He's probably pushing seven, but I'd say a six. You know, he's definitely a solid six. I could I could go seven if somebody argued that way, but he just... He seems, I mean, he's, he's, he's not engaging that great, with but his he's not eyes. That bad. He smiles. He doesn't, I don't know. I, I, do, I don't think I would, I, I'm not going to have sex with him. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, they were trying to fucking reel in his authority right out of the gate. And they seem to have some reason for feeling like they needed to. And according to Palmer... Medic officials were becoming less interested in what Rael's extraterrestrials were saying and more involved in networking with other ufology groups and Trekkies. To exploit the entertainment potential of the ET phenomenon, they were planning a money-making lecture series with other contactees as the invited speakers. The members were more interested in touring other UFO fan groups than in listening to The Last Prophet. Medic seemed to be just one more group in a trending ET circuit, like another booth at a convention, rather than a singular movement or a religion. It seems that Rael was not content to be just another sci-fi author or another space alien encounter novelty, though L. Ron Hubbard started there and worked his way to be a successful cult leader. This direction of the organization as basically an affinity group with its own quirky UFO story, was really raining on Rael's parade. By July, Rael disbanded the top officials of Maddock and replaced them with a seven-person bureaucracy. He also changed the mission of the group to be to spread the message received by Rael and to raise money to build an embassy for the Elohim. 
Hundreds of thousands of people around the world believe, as all Raelians do, that we were created by advanced scientists from another planet who made us in their image. Those extraterrestrial creators mentioned in the Bible as the Elohim have continued throughout history to monitor our progress and have also sent us messengers, including Jesus, the Buddha, Mohammed, and a few dozen others throughout the centuries. Each messenger brought humanity a message appropriate for the level of human understanding prevailing at the time. Our current level of knowledge prompted our extraterrestrial creators to send one last messenger, Rael. His mission is to tell human beings the truth about our origins and to communicate our creator's desire to meet with us, accompanied by all the ancient prophets they will bring with them, as announced in various religions and traditional scriptures found on all continents. But before the Elohim officially visit us, we must build an embassy in a world of peace, which will become the third temple predicted in ancient writings. They look like us because they, they created us in their image, like the Bible explained. And these people came on the earth a very long time ago. They built big laboratories, and in these laboratories, thanks to DNA and genetic combination, they created all life on earth. It means trees, animals, and men in their image. The original Bible, you can find one very easily. It's not written the first day God did that, but the first day Elohim did that. The second day Elohim did that. And in Hebrew, Elohim means those who came from the sky. They asked me if possible to build this embassy near Jerusalem, because it's for them a very important place. They had the first laboratory was made, the Garden of Eden is in, in the Bible, was near Jerusalem. It's, it's up to us, we, we have the choice. We, they, they are not invaders, they respect us, so they will come only if we want to welcome them. And the people who are ready will help you. We don't need to convince all the mankind. We cannot convince all the mankind. And you cannot convince. Jesus couldn't, Moses couldn't, Mohammed couldn't. So you have just to find the right people, they are at the right place to bring them together and they will help you. We already are 20,000 and we will build this embassy. He received a message in August of that year at a summit with followers in the mountains where he met his space visitor that Medic would be in for trying times and harsh criticism of their prophet. Turns out he's able to see the future, his prediction came true, and the following March in 1975, he got rid of all of the leaders that wanted to place rules on his authority. <laughs> <laughs> In 1975, he had his close encounter of the second time when he caught the last spaceship heading off-world. He visited their robot sex slave utopia and found out more about his special mission. Gene Gary, today a Raelian bishop and a close follower of Rael from the beginning, was instructed by Rael to read the Prayer of the Elohim from his second book, Extraterrestrials Took Me to Their Planet, and a letter ordering the dismantling of Medic at the General Assembly in January 1976. 90% of the audience got up and walked out. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just wanted the true believers to stay, though. Just he the true believers. He was willing to let them go. Well, he fucking got them. Here's the prayer. Technique for attempting telepathic contact with the Elohim. Elohim, you are there somewhere near those stars. 
Elohim, you are there, and I know you are watching us. Elohim, you are there, and I would so much like to meet you. Elohim, you are there, and who am I to hope to deserve a contact? Elohim, I recognize you as our creators, and I place myself humbly at your service. Elohim, I recognize Claude Rael, your messenger, as my guide, and I believe in him and in the message you gave him. Elohim, I will do my best to make the message known to those around me, because I know I have not done enough. Elohim, I love all human beings as my brothers and sisters, because they are made in your image. Elohim, I am trying to bring them happiness by opening their minds to infinity and revealing to them what was revealed to me. Elohim, I am trying to stop their suffering by placing my whole being at the service of mankind, of which I am a part. Elohim, I am trying to use to the utmost the mind you have given me to help humankind emerge from darkness and suffering. Elohim, I hope that you will judge the little I have done by the end of my life to be sufficient and grant me the right to eternal life on the planet of the wise. I love you, as you must have loved human beings to admit the best of them among your eternals. What a fucking prayer. Sorry, I was, re- I was reading it like I was reading Neruda or something. <laughs> By February, Rael replaced Medic with the Raelian movement. Medic was more of a club than a devoted following, so Rael aimed to fix that. He instituted rituals, norms, and mores, a much more stratified hierarchy with him at the top as the guide of guides, and even a panel for excommunication called the Council of Discipline, which sounds like a kinky BDSM thing. It took two years for Medic to rise and fall in order for his real vision of him at the center of it all to be realized in its new form, the International Raelian Movement. Rael set about forming a proper religion right away. It needed rituals, social strata, and customs. He divided the members into guides and Raelians, like clergy and the tithing rabble. 11% of income is expected from true believers, much like the Mormon 10% custom. At the early stage, they started with dues-paying members who got the newsletter, Apocalypse. Apocalypse is the name of the newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) To be fair, tithing isn't enforced, and in a 1994 survey, about a third of the members didn't pay. Rael even suggested about 60% don't pay. The guides are referred to as the structure. It's a six-layer hierarchy, one layer short of the best nacho meal, in which he's re-elected every seven years. This is, this is like a Kim Jong-un re-election. Or, or Putin. Or Putin. I mean, like, yeah, he's elected, quotation marks. <laughs> there are three bishops who constitute the Council of the Wise. It, which is, it's again, it's more quality control for Rael's authority. By the way, Council of the Wise sounds like a bad riff in an 80s movie where, where they're, they, they've got some, some Muppets who are controlling things and, and, you, and you find out who's in control of things and they say, oh, it's the Council of the Wise. Right. It's, it's, it's a side quest in Fraggle Rock. <laughs> 
His rituals included essentially guided meditation, which he called transmission. For those who were baptized, they were required to write a letter to their old church renouncing their Christian baptism and requesting that their name be removed from the church's lists. Of, of the rituals, this, this one here is kind of funky. It, it really solidifies the absolutism. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a real there will be no God before me kind of vibe. That's exactly it. To add to the social and normative element, members were required to be essentially straight edge. No stimulants, no drugs, no alcohol. Yeah, no alcohol, no smoking. Again, another similarity with Mormonism while we're on the subject. Well, and Islam too. And Islam too. I mean, that's the much, that's the much more popular straight edge religion. <laughs> Regular meetings, sensual meditation, non-mandatory. Whoa, 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 whoa. Sensual meditation. So let's get into that. (laughs) (laughs) I read through everything that I could read on sensual meditation. The way that it's described is that you start, it starts off with your standard step by step uh, uh, guided meditation, if you will. The idea is that you get so excited about life that you have a universal orgasm. So it's like a Raelian neuro massage. Yeah. (laughs) But it's really just guided meditation with the emphasis on if you could climax, that'll be great. (laughs) And uh, non-mandatory nudity, fasting, confessionals, and other religious features were added to IRM, transforming it into a proper cult rather than just a book club. You know, the word cult, it has some connotations that I'm not quite sure apply to this. Yeah, I, I've seen it described in popular culture and among journalists, it's always described as a cult. I'm not sure that that's an appropriate term, though. When, when I see academics writing about it, and there, there aren't that many that write about it, I mean, sort of railians have kind of faded into the background at this point. I would say that it's much more common for academics to refer to it as a new religion rather than a cult. And to be honest, I I was being a little snarky when I when I wrote cult here and in a couple of other places to be snarky. But I also felt the same discomfort calling it a cult exactly. I mean, this isn't Jonestown shit. That's what I'm going to say. This These are not some people who are taking some fucking Kool-Aid here. Right. And this isn't Heaven's Gate shit. Exactly. I mean, we can call that a cult. That's a fucking cult. When I say Buddha, cult, Buddha field or something like that. These are reli- those are religious cults. This is. I also wouldn't call this a religion either, and that's why I was kind of like tongue in cheek calling it a cult in this script. But I don't feel like cult or religion fit this quite right. But it's not like Buddhism either, where it's simply a belief system without a theology. Well, I mean, it depends on the kind of Buddhism, too. There's a lot of varieties of Buddhism. Like, you know, for example, Pure Land Buddhism is very much a religion with a theology. There's gods, there's demons, there's salvation, all that stuff. You know, like all those things that we would associate with Christianity, you can find in Pure Land Buddhism. Yeah. It really depends on the variety of Buddhism, even. I think the biggest subtext about the term cult is that we associate it with some kind of terrifically nefarious things 
Right. That, and we're going to get more into this, I really didn't see as much in this one. No. And I think that that is something that I'm going to highlight now, and we're probably going to highlight it a few more times throughout this episode right. and part two. But fuck, this is not nearly the nefarious shit that we've been covering no. recently. No, there's all kinds of goofy things that are going on, and... Yeah, I don't need to give my complete opinion of Claude Rael at this point, but yeah, he's not he's not a Jim Jones or a Marshall Applewhite. He's something different. Of the values, I can't say they're terrible. Some were a little cringy, but here's what Rael added. Take responsibility for one's actions and never obey orders that go against one's conscience. Respect differences, racial, sexual, religious, cultural. Strive for world peace and promote nonviolence. Put an end to the masochistic use of drugs that mutate the genetic code. Share wealth and resources. Uphold democracy. That will allow a democratic vote to usher in geniocracy. Promote nonviolence. There's that word, geniocracy. Yep. And we're going to come to that. By the way, number three and number seven are both basically promote nonviolence. I know, he says it twice. He says it twice. World peace, promote violence, and so, then promote I mean, nonviolence. I, not that I'm complaining about that. It's just an editorial remark. He is a little repetitive here. He, he, needed, a, he needed seven. He could, six wasn't good. He needed seven. Rael spread the good word of the ET internationally pretty quickly. It took hold especially in Quebec, Japan, and of course, France. His first missions were in the early 80s to Japan and two years later to Africa. The movement claims presently 130,000 members in over 120 countries. At least in 1995, the annual income for the organization was about 1.8 million Canadian, which comes out to about a million American dollars. The trouble with this organization, as I mentioned before, is a lot of our data comes from old sources and the Raelians themselves. It is really hard to find meaningful sources outside of those two things. From the book, Intelligent Design. In accordance with what is written earlier in this message, you will not leave an inheritance to your children, except for the family house or apartment. The rest you will leave in your will to the guide of guides. And if you fear your descendants might not respect your last will and testament, but might try to recover your property through the courts, you will bestow it while you are alive on the guide of guides in order to help him spread the message of our creators on earth. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. From the same book in the chapter New Commandments. You will at least once a year give a donation to the guide of guides that is equal to at least 1% of your annual income in order to help him devote himself full-time to his mission and travel around the world to spread his message. 1% doesn't sound too crazy. By the way... Uh, but that's not the full amount. That's not the full amount. And if I've ever heard a good MLM uh, passive income marketing scheme... Yeah, right. The Raelian story is that 3% should be given to the international fund, 7% to your own national chapter, and 1% to the guide of guides. That's Rael. This is not required, but it is, as we just mentioned, in the New Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> so how are your alien creators going to think of you if you do not pay your fair share? 
<laughs> the Raelian Foundation, which is described by some of the ex-members as a personal piggy bank for Rael, is supposed to be for the embassy, but it is set up separately from the international Raelian movement. These are two totally different organizations, structurally, tax purposes-wise. It It is unclear exactly where or how these funds are used, but the Raelians claim it's primarily literature and outreach. So the foundation is supposed to be for the embassy, and the international Raelian movement is supposed to be the organization needs itself, you know, for growing the church. But he's pulling from the foundation for his right. 1%. Well, he, he's the only person that has, has access to those funds. It's basically his personal bank account. At least according to Raelian ex-members who are obviously soured sources. From Palmer, we get a supposed budget of about a million per year with the rest saving towards the embassy. Now, keep in mind that Palmer was writing this stuff in the 90s. No, no, this is in 2004. Oh, well, okay. So but Palmer's a lot writing- of, but, but a lot of her sources were from the 90s. That's where I got and that Throughout from. most of the book, it's from the 90s. So how long is it going to take to fund this fucking embassy? <laughs> I mean, if they're, if they're- How much money do they need? If, if, if it's at least 0.7 million per year- as the scraps left over, how long does it take to build this fucking embassy? We were talking in the neighborhood of $30 million, maybe more than 50. And what are they building? It, you can find plans of this embassy. There, It is not a grand structure. It is literally a bubble house that looks like something Jacques Fresco designed and <laughs> complete with an alien landing pad and a pool. That's it. It's like seven rooms. It, it looks like if a modernist architect, uh, uh, architecture student wanted to do fucking earthships and then add a pool. Throughout the 90s and aughts, Raelians worked on controversial issues, which was not an accident, but it wasn't inconsistent with their beliefs either. It really worked to their benefit to spread their message and to spread public awareness for what they were doing. At the same time, everything they were doing was totally consistent with their beliefs. Clitoraid, free-the-nipple events, and even masturbation, condom, and other birth control have been part of the program in the 90s and onwards. So these are, these are outreach programs. These are outreach programs. Clitoraid, Clonaid, Go Topless, masturbation education, condom advocacy, and other birth control have been part of their outreach programs. Rael is clearly connecting with later waves of feminism, but also these are headline-grabbing positions for his movement. To be fair, I, I can't say that these are terrible ideas. Most of these things are things that I already support. We have Clitoraid, which addresses female genital mutilation. It's hard to argue with that. I mean, they set up, they set up programs, specifically funded a hospital in Burkini Faso, to reverse the the damage done from female genital mutilation, uh, th- this that was that really happened. They they helped a lot of women who had been mutilated as children. The go topless thing. Who can argue with the free the nipple campaign? I'm not going to argue with it. It's a kind of an issue that it's like, yeah, I have no disagreement whatsoever, but I also don't really care. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, fair like, enough. It, it doesn't. It doesn't really impact 
I, I, I don't, I don't feel that. Now that might be from, you know, coming from a breastless human's perspective that I, I, you know, I don't really feel it, but I personally don't go around topless, you know, as a male, I don't really see this as an issue. You know, like there, there's a sign at most convenience stores that says no shirt, no shoes, no service. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I, I don't have a, I, I mean, it, it just doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's fair. It's obviously not an equitable situation, but at the same time, like it's not at the top of my list. I really do think that that one is one of those that is consistent with the belief, but probably a lot more headline grabbing. Yeah. Oh, of course it is. I mean, and they're they're very choosy about some of the about most of the photo ops they do too. One of the things you didn't mention there was the uh, the outreach to uh, sex workers. That's another one. You know, the the Raelians have done a great deal of work to bring in strippers and prostitutes into the Raelian movement, basically with a with an extremely sex positive attitude. So all of these sex workers you know, varieties of sex workers are welcomed with open arms into the Raelian movement. And transgender ops, folks too. The the photo ops are endless. <laughs> you know, yeah. like who who doesn't want to see a bunch of a, of of attractive people with their tops off for the the free the nipple campaign. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And trans transgender folks too. Yeah. They've been they don't have an issue with that very either. positive and and promoting LGBTQ plus Folks, I will say that the condom advocacy that I mentioned earlier, one of the things that they did is that uh, in, in Quebec, it's a heavily Catholic concentrated city, and they would uh, were rejected. They were e ejected, if you will, uh, from the different high schools and things like that, where otherwise uh, they're, they're allowed to have condoms for free for the young folks. And it was specifically in the Catholic schools where they said, no dice. We're not going to have any condoms because uh, Catholic children don't have sex. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and so they, they, they had a fucking, a fucking, uh, which now I'm about to say it, it sounds kind of creepy, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrible in, in idea. Uh, they, they had a thing where they distributed condoms for free in uh, uh, this little like mobile van outside of those specific Catholic schools that said, we won't have these, these condoms, which sounds cringy. I, I'm saying it out loud. It sounds cringy, but like in, if you, if you will, in, in the other high schools and, and different schools, it's like the t-shirt gun, but full of condoms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're shooting it over the walls. <laughs> I, I do feel a little cringe when I think about the uh, the masturbation programs, the education programs. That's a uh, yikes. <laughs> that one I, is a little fucking yikes, and it's specifically targeted yeah. towards younger folks. Well, I mean, they were they were encouraging parents to teach their children about how to masturbate. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. They caught a lot of heat for that one, and I could see why. I don't necessarily think that there is anything suspicious about the campaign. It was probably well intended. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, I mean, I think the road they, to hell I, and all let, that. Let, let's just say that, like, I think that they 
did not mean anything creepy by it, but somehow couldn't see how other people, pretty much every other person would think it was creepy for parents to be teaching their children how to masturbate. While we're on the subject, they did also have a a an organization that they saw that they started called No Pedo. Yeah, well, that was in response to all the journalists, uh, all the journalism <laughs> that was calling them pedophiles for the masturbation education program. So, <laughs> a large part of the philosophy shares the idea of manifest destiny. I think that is the biggest thing that I have issue with of the Raelian ideology. We're going to talk a little bit more about it in part two, but the aliens are basically playing the part of the Europeans in the script. It's the same story, but you have the the pro professed progressive ideology of Raelianism, peace among men and and all that sort of thing. But the top posts in the IRM are only occupied by cis men. And on top of that, we have basically this idea that human beings are these infantile creatures that don't know any better and need the guidance of their overlords. And specifically, the same kind of rigid hierarchy that we see from all of the other horrifying religions. Well, unless you're Jewish. Unless you're Jewish. <laughs> unless you're Jewish, because then you're one of the chosen people. Exactly. <laughs> chosen by the scientists. And, you know, that's even an awkward part, too, because, boy, am I glad that this is not one of the ones that are anti-Semitic. But then they take it to a fucking creepy place with the Jews. Does it, does it make it better to be pro-Semitic? I don't even know. Like, it's just, it's just fucking creepy how he does it. Yeah, where, where you put Jewish people in front of everybody else. While the Raelians are still working on their embassy, they have headquarters and important bases of operations. In 97, they opened UFO Land, which was the largest structure ever made in North America out of bales of hay. <laughs> to round this out I can't say it's the worst group that we've discussed but I can't say that they have decent ideas either their progressive positions on sex positivity and sexual orientation and a bunch of other things are pretty commendable it's in sharp relief from a lot of the groups and people that we've been covering recently it really is However, we can't overlook the extremely hierarchical structure of the organization, with Rael as the indefinite overlord and prophet. It's incredibly masculine-driven, so they have this very sex-positive attitude, but this is a guy who wrote about mindless female sex clones, and that attitude is really carried over into the, into the organization itself. Most of the major positions are held by men. There are a few exceptions. But mostly it is men. Of level five out of six, six being him at the top. Right. Level five is all held by cisgendered men exclusively. Thank you for listening to another premium episode of Wet Wired. We'll dive into the Raelian beliefs and controversies surrounding Rael in part two. 
Thanks for supporting the show and helping us stay ad-free and independent. You can help us even more by spreading the word about the show and sharing this episode on social. If you want to reach out, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WetWiredPod. Until next time. For 32 years, I have been uh, promoting the Raelian movement. I am the founder and the leader of the Raelian movement, which say there is no God, there is no soul, and of course, there is no Holy Spirit. So it's a pleasure to support your website and your actions uh, to promote atheism worldwide, because uh, we, the Raelian movement, use the same technique uh, as the religious group who try to proselytize worldwide to have as many followers as possible. And I think it's good also that atheists uh, use the same technique to proselytize also and to counterbalance uh, the bad influence of, of God believers. So uh, it's very important for me to push people to read the message I wrote, which is a completely atheist and rationalist message, which explain uh, that we have been created by an advanced civilization coming from another planet. Uh, in, in a way, it's, this is the third way. Uh, before, there was a believing in God who created uh, everything on Earth in, in uh, seven days. Then there was a, the theory of evolution. And here comes a third way. We, being the fruit of a scientific creation from scientists of a very advanced civilization, using DNA and genetic engineering and creating all life on Earth as a scientific experimentation. And we are about to do the same. We start to create life, to do human cloning. We start to create uh, artificial form of life. And soon we will, ourselves, create life on another planet. And so this is very important. Rail spread the good word of the ET internationally pretty quickly. It it took hold in Quebec, Japan, and of course France, most especially. His first I'm gonna try that again. Rail spread the good word of the ET internationally fairly quickly. If you say France again, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta keep that in.